This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why I've chosen to use their gear above all else, here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created, and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 213. Today we're cranking up the first DIY report mini-series of the year with none other than Mr. John Eberhardt, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Here we are at the mid to later end of of January, and for most of us, the hunting season is probably over. Uh, I have a few weeks here left in PA. Uh, I shouldn't say a few weeks. I don't know exactly what the date is today, um, but the end of the month is whenever the season runs out for me here in PA, so I might be able to get out 
uh, one more time uh, before everything's kind of kind of shuts down. Didn't get a chance to get out this weekend. Um, this time of year is when I start to kind of shift my focus and kind of uh, start taking care of things around the house to get myself back in good graces um, <laughs> for the upcoming season, or maybe even more specifically, maybe the upcoming upcoming scouting trips and, and, and stuff like that, you know, during the hunting season, like a lot of you, a lot of the, the normal tasks, duties, et cetera, that kind of fall underneath my responsibility at the house, uh, go undone or, or pushed to the back burner between the months of, Oh, I don't know. Let's say for me, probably like mid September through, um, Christmas timeframe probably is, is, is a fair kind of time frame where, you know, I, it's the bare minimum around the house while I'm out in the timber trying to, trying to chase, uh, chase critters around. Um, so this time of year, once you get through the holidays and you get into January, I can usually get out for some hunts here and there. Uh, but the wife definitely, uh, is looking for me to kind of, uh, re, uh, pick back up the, the household duties that I typically was doing, you know, prior to hunting season, not to mention that, or beyond that, I think I've mentioned on this show before, I typically am gone during her, uh, during her birthday because it, it falls during the course of usually during my trips whenever I'm out of state. So usually what happens is, is this time of year is also the time where I, uh, where I make good on being gone and end up taking a weekend away uh, to uh, show her the appreciation that I have for her allowing me to do the things that I like to do kind of untethered because she's awesome. She lets me do what I want to do. She doesn't really, she doesn't complain ever whenever I'm gone. And so, you know, I have nothing to complain about in, in that regard. My wife is pretty killer. Not that this is episodes turning into like a, a wife love fest, but we ended up going away this past weekend <clears throat> into the Poconos and stayed at this really, uh, really cool place and just kind of had a weekend away, uh, which was nice. Also kind of nice just to kind of get away and reset after the season and just kind of not think about hunting for a weekend and just kind of spend some time drinking some good wine, hanging out, eating some good food and just, uh, having a nice kind of relaxing, relaxing weekend. But with that, we're back on the grind. We're back on whitetails and I'm super excited for this DIY report mini series. First one of the year, you know, we'll do a couple of these throughout the year. Uh, and this one's with John Eberhardt. Uh, if you remember, I don't even remember, I think it was like in the one forties or something like that, uh, of the episode series, <clears throat> we did a DIY report series with John, where we talked a lot about, you know, hunting primary scrapes, uh, scrape areas, how he, you know, defines his access routes and stuff like that. If you've not listened to any of those, I would urge you to go back and listen to those because those were really great episodes. And we're doing another DIY report series, mini series here with, um, with John Eberhardt, where we're going to focus on a few things just a little bit differently. Um, the first one that you're going to hear today, the one we're launching today is really around late season. Now I know, you know, you're probably saying, Hey, you know, late season's either past or almost past. But what I would say is that it's always kind of important as we're thinking about future seasons to try to sharpen our sharpen our tools. And late season is something I've really not talked to John a lot about. And John has a lot of experience when it comes to late season hunting, especially in high pressured areas, um, and kind of has a specific way as 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 he likes to go about it. You'll hear us talk a little about, about a little bit about hunting mornings, um, which is something that's not. Uh, I would say is not common for late season is not common, you know, in terms of what you would read in media outlets, what you would see written in, you know, magazines, or even what you would hear people talk about. It's always evenings, evenings, evenings. And John has a specific way about hunting mornings. And I think mornings are becoming more and more popular to a degree. There's, there's ways to get it done in, in relationship to that. But his is very specific on what the setup is, you know, where they're bedding, where they're feeding, 
um, and what your access looks like. So we talk a little bit about that today and just cover his kind of game plan for, for late season, especially if he's going to travel a little bit out of state. He's looking for snow to be on the ground. And he has kind of rhyme and, and a reason as to why he, uh, why he wants that. But the two other sessions, this is going to be a three-part series with John. This is part one late season. The other two parts are, um, you know, one is uh, how he plans an out-of-state hunt. A lot of the how I hunt out-of-state is attributed to, you know, John's uh, John's approach overall. Um, I've picked up a lot of things from him. You know, he's been traveling out-of-state for years and doing that game, you know, probably long before it became, became popular. He's got, you know, deer on the wall to kind of... Um, to kind of show for it. And then the other part that I wanted to talk to him about, which is, you know, I think it's the second part actually is his off season approach to scouting. John has a very kind of metic- meticulous way as to how he goes about his approach to scouting post season. He really doesn't do anything prior to the season as you would call like preseason scouting, like the summer stuff like that. John kind of wraps everything up in the months of March and April. Um, unless he happens to get a new piece of property, you know, a piece of knock on door permission or something like that where he didn't have prior to the season, he might go in and scout it then. Um, but by and large, John gets everything done in the months of, of, of March and April. And he has a very kind of specific way as to how he goes about it and how he sets up his, his areas and how he goes about scouting a piece. Um, and he talks about that as well. He also has a workshop that he puts on every March, uh, every spring. And he mentions it at the end of this, um, where he does do a thing where you can come out and spend a day with him and watch how he scouts and he'll go through like his process and how he sets up his, his uh, saddle locations and stuff like that. So if you're interested in that, be sure to just Google him and you can find his workshops and sign up, um, sign up for that. But before we jump into today's podcast, a couple things to uh, provide you just quick reminders of one is if you're planning out of state hunts, you know, like I do, I'm always kind of bogged down with trying to remember what the uh, application dates are for different lottery drawings when I need to get, you know, buy points, all those types of things. And if you're doing it across multiple states, it gets really confusing. You know, for me, it's, it's, you know, this year, at least it's Kansas, Iowa, and then, you know, for deer at least, and then I might be throwing in some turkey hunts and stuff like that. And, you know, out West. And so it gets to be a lot. And so what I ended up doing was signing up for hunt reminder to send me reminders for all the, all the application deadlines that I need to hit because I've missed deadlines in the past that ended up screwing my, my hunting situation for a given fall. So if you don't, if you're not sure what hunt reminder is, it's an application period and lottery reminder service. And they have a a database of 470 different application periods across the U S and Canada. And it ranges from big game to small game, migratory birds. It also includes preference points, public land drawings, youth hunts, basically whatever you need to know in terms of application period for any type of hunt, they will be able to provide you those, those reminders. So when users sign up, they can select which application periods they'd like to be get reminders for. Like I mentioned, I'm looking at Kansas and Iowa for, uh, for deer and then maybe Iowa for Turkey, you know, you'll get a text message or an email notification when your application period opens up. So whatever state it is, whatever species it is, as soon as the application period opens, you'll get an email or a text reminder from hunt reminder. Uh, when there's one week left, you'll get a reminder. And then also you'll get another reminder when there's 24 hours remaining in that application period. So um, it also provides a direct link to online applications within those reminders as well. So you can easily get to where you need to be in order to sign up. Hunt Reminder only costs $19.99 for an annual subscription. That's not a month. That's an annual subscription, which comes out to just about $1.67 per month. But right now, users can use the promo code TRUTH for $5 off their first year, bringing the total down for your whole year to just $14.99. Join thousands of other hunters who rely on Hunt Reminder by going to huntreminder.com and signing up today. Your next tag is waiting. Also, 
One other quick reminder is that I do have Truth From The Stand merch. Uh, You can find the link to that on my Instagram profile. Go to the link in bio, and it will be in there. It says Truth Merch. Go ahead and check that out, or you can go to truthfromthestand.com, and there should be a merch tab there as well. You can click on that. I've got some T-shirts, some sweatshirts, coffee mugs. Pick up some Truth Merch. I'd super uh, be super appreciative if you'd pick some stuff up. It always helps uh, kind of me to propel this podcast forward. So with that, we will go ahead and jump into today's podcast with John Eberhardt talking all about late season hunting. As always, thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I have a gentleman on the phone who needs no introduction. I think this might be the fourth time that we've had you on, John, but I'm speaking with None other than Mr. John Eberhardt. How you doing, man? Hey, Clint. I'm doing great. And thanks for the opportunity to talk to all my fellow bow hunters out there. That's right, man. I always enjoy talking to you, whether it's on the podcast or whether we're just having a phone call. Like you are, I don't, I, I don't know. It's a breath of fresh air when I talk to you. Maybe that's a way to, <laughs> maybe that's well, a way, way to say, it. yeah, man, you're always, a, you're always a straight shooter and you're always down to help provide information if I have questions or or whatever the case is, man. And I'm always appreciative of that. And you don't sugarcoat it for me. If I'm doing something stupid, you'll, you'll tell me, you know, so. <laughs> I definitely do not sugarcoat things. I piss off a lot of people because I tell it the way it is. <laughs> well, hey, yeah. you, you will find no enemies here of, of the truth. So you've, you've got a, <laughs> you've got a good audience here, but I'm, I'm currently drinking a little, uh, a little glass of bourbon. So I'm having a good evening. I'm settled in. I'm going to talk deer hunting with John Eberhardt. I'm not sure how much better my night could get quite possibly. So with that oh, i could think of, i could think a better way <laughs> i could think a better <laughs> well in the in the context of what i've got going on at the very moment i think i'm i'm, I'm topped out is what i'm saying okay. <laughs> um cool. but what we're going to do here folks for all you guys out there listening um i've done a couple of series with john in the past where we talked about different approaches to how he approaches different parts of the season and and, and the type of things he looks for um, during those parts of the season, I think it was a three-part series we did. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to kick off another three-part series, a, a DIY report mini-series with John. Um, he's been gracious enough to give us some of his time to kind of talk through a couple topics. And really what we're going to hit on in part one is we're going to talk about hunting high-pressure uh, high pressure areas during the late season. Part two of this session is going to be really about John's process of how he goes about doing his postseason scouting. Um, and if you're familiar with him at all, you know, he it's primarily you – know, all public land or knock on door free permission, you know, so this is not managed lands and things of that nature that are manicured for deer hunting. He's hunting just like the rest of us. And the third one is going to be how John goes about planning out of state hunts. Um, this last two, the, the, the postseason hunting and the out of state hunt thing is really where I've got a lot of my information and I follow a very similar process. So I've learned a lot from John. I think you guys can learn a lot from him in these in these regards too. So, with that, John, if you're game man, we'll just go ahead and get jumped into the um, into into late season. If you're down with it, sound good? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. So, as I mentioned, man, I've learned a ton from you. You know, throughout the years, some of which you know because we've spoke. You know, either on the podcast or offline. I've read I've read some of your uh, your your books and so forth. Consumed videos that you've done. You know, and, and a lot of the way I hunt um, is uh, is based off of a lot of things I've learned from you, especially when it comes to hunting that mid-October and into that rut phase kind of time period, focusing on destination locations, active scrapes, things like that, right? But what is yep. your what is your base method for trying to find success in late season, especially for guys out there that are hunting in these high-pressured states like Michigan and Pennsylvania? Uh, go to another state. <laughs> Great, great answer. <laughs> um, 
everyone, that well, is the end. That is the end of part one. We thank you for listening. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's the reality. That's the reality. Is I mean, I've been bow hunting 53 seasons in Michigan, and I think I've shot three book bucks in December out of 31. And uh, you know, we've got. You know, in New York and PA, West Virginia, Virginia, all the states up in the Northeast where there's heavy population, uh, they're all in the same boat, basically. Um, they have just a lot of gun season. You know, yeah. we've got an uh, early gun season in September. We've got a youth gun season in September. We've got uh, November 15th through the end of November rifle season. And then the whole month of November, we've got a 10-day muzzleloader season. And then the rest of the month is gun season for for does uh so there's so much pressure after november 15th and we've got you know 700,000 gun hunters yeah. 320,000 bow hunters and a buck that's three and a half years old and older they just to be perfectly honest if you don't have the right type of property the right type of bedding area the right type of security cover the odds of getting an opportunity in daylight hours for a buck, a mature buck to move during daylight hours is very, very slim. Right. Now, now there are places in Michigan where people own a lot of property and they manage it like TV guys do. And those guys, those guys see deer in December because they're not shooting a deer until they're three or four years old. So obviously by the time they reach the kill status, you know, they're moving in daylight a lot. So, uh, right. but, but those, our bucks get targeted when they're a year and a half old you know, the bucks on public land and knock on doors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when they're, they got their first set of antlers, they're getting targeted. So as two and three year olds, they're just extremely smart and they're just very good at avoiding hunters. And, and once there's that much gun pressure, they, they just don't move during daylight. It's just so rare, but I still love doing it. <laughs> I love hunting in December. A couple weeks ago, just, I think it was the last week in December, you know, we got this fresh snow. It was like 25 degrees and the snow was in the trees and I had no interest in shooting a deer, but I just <laughs> went bow hunting because it was just so gorgeous. Outside. Right. Yeah. No, I hear you for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I love, I love hunting in December, but if you're not hunting property that has the adequate security cover, You've got to be in the, you know, if you're hunting out of trees, you've got to have a big enough diameter tree. You can hide behind it. You know, you've got to, you've got to be hidden in the tree. Um, you, if you're hunting something between a bedding and feeding, it's got to have really good, uh, you know, security cover between the bedding area and the, and the feeding area. Um, it, it, it's, it's just very, very difficult. Right. As you well know. Yeah. As you yeah, well know. Yeah. So uh, th let's talk a little bit about that. It can be done. It yes. can be done. Yes, it, it, it can be done. I don't want to make it sound for folks out there like it, it, like it's a, an impossibility. But it, 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 and I totally agree with you. I, I experience the same stuff here in Pennsylvania where, you know, even just when I'm monitoring, monitoring trail cameras, um, the activity just in that regard is just drastically, drastically different. Um, yep. And it, when it does happen, you know, it's at night or what I'm really kind of seeing right now, because I have some cell cameras out in some of my kind of prime spots and really just seeing year and a half old deer moving around and that's about it you know i'm not even seeing does at this point i saw a young year and a half old deer check this one scrape was one lonely scrape he's just he's out still trying to find some love <laughs> you know what i mean so <laughs> oh is the year and a half old antlered buck yeah yeah he's just a little yeah, okay. you know what we would refer to as a michigan or pennsylvania 11 point you know yeah okay. um, 
Yep. Yeah, just a youngster. But when you're mentioning that right type of security cover, because I think for me, you know, that was a big thing for me, you know, and, and as I evolved as a hunter, you know, following a lot of the stuff that you talk about, especially when it was in October and, you know, pre-rut and rut kind of phase. But when you're talking about the right type of security cover or bedding during late season, given that that can look vastly different from October to when you get to December, just based on how the foliage changes in the timber between those times. So give me an example of what you would, what you would deem or the type of habitat you would deem to be good security cover or bedding for late season. Probably the, probably the best spot you could have in a state like Michigan. And I don't know what you have in PA. I've never hunted PA Hmm. uh, is cedar swamps. Because cedar swamps are relatively dense. It's low ground. There's a lot of weeds typically. Uh, cedars grow low to the ground unless they're browsed up high. And so you not only have a bedding area, you also have a feeding zone. Mm-hmm. So if you can get in a, you know, something like a cedar swamp where they have some, a food source there as well, or if you're in a, just a heavy marsh grass or cattail marshy area swamp where, where you have to cross a river to get back to it. So you're leaving your other public land people behind. Um, and there's, let's say, an an oak some oaks you know an island of oaks or an area of oaks where there's still acorns on the ground um you know there there's still a chance that you could potentially get an opportunity at a mature buck in december and all all three of the books book bucks in michigan and i've shot several other monster bucks out of state in december in illinois and ohio mm-hmm. um but all of them i've shot in michigan were in uh dense dense bedding areas where there was also food, natural food sources in the bedding area. Because a mature buck in a Michigan PA, they just are not going to be fooled. I mean, baiting's banned here now, and I wasn't baiting anyway. But they just don't get fooled. There's a lot of people here that still bait. Uh, They just don't get fooled by anything man-made, like food plots and stuff like that. Of course, on public and knock-on doors, you never have that anyway. But but the mature bucks, they, they just don't get fooled by that. They're interesting that you call out mornings right because i think what uh, this is probably a big miss for a lot of guys that hunt public land if they're not if they're being sold the the bag of goods that you know the big hunting media sells you which is like you can't hunt mornings in late season it's all evenings you know, on destination food sources right but we don't have that right and so i think that's a really <laughs> that's a really good point right there is like for the public land guy the diy public land guy if you're in a high pressure state Mornings are probably your best option because you need to be in tight, close to bedding because you don't have those. De- like, I think what I'm noticing, John, around here, and I, I do have like the one area that I have been hunting a little bit during late season is around a cedar swamp. It's near mm-hmm. this piece of water. And during pre-rut and rut, I was kayaking in and I was having some, you know, some 
good encounters or some good good hunts in that situation, but it's all surrounded. That primary scrape area is all surrounded by cedar swamp, essentially. And I went in and hunted the opposite side of it during late season, and that was where I was finding all of like the like the the deer scat and doe tracks and stuff like that because sure. on the edges of those cedar swamps was just a pile of greenbrier, and so yep. they're able to bed and eat basically within a 50 yard area that they never have to expose themselves during daylight. And I'm sure that's probably what you're kind of experiencing in Michigan too. Is that right? At, at 100%, you're absolutely correct. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, like when I went to Ohio and I shot a big buck a couple of years ago, um, I blew off morning hunting. Mm-hmm. The property was not conducive to morning hunting because it had a lot of ag on it. So there's no way I could enter any of my locations. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker before daylight without spooking deer in the ag areas because the bedding areas were small enough I couldn't get in them without spooking deer feeding in the vicinity. Right. And obviously there was snow on the ground and the snow was crunchy, so it made noise. So it, it was very obvious of my entry. And then I hunted another spot in Ohio three years ago. I didn't kill anything, but that was a really interesting hunt. That was in December. And we didn't have any snow when I say we, I, cause I always do this by myself. Right. Um, there wasn't any snow on the ground and all the leaves were really crunchy cause it was getting down into the low twenties at night. So the very first, I prepped a couple trees and then the very first morning I went in, I just blew all the deer out of the area. I could hear them running up in front of me. So from that point on, and I was in some oaks hmm. from that point on, I didn't hunt mornings. And what I would do is I'd get up at like eight o'clock because I had three trees prepped. I would get up at eight o'clock and I would go to all three of these locations. So the deer were already out of the area from my tree. They were beyond that, Mm -hmm. but they were still bedded within probably two to 300 yards from my tree location. Mm -hmm. So by me entering through that crunchy snow, I was actually spooking the deer. I could actually hear the deer running you know, two, 300 yards up to a quarter mile. And I could see flags going through the, through the uh, timber up way up in front of me. And it was kind of hill country. Mm -hmm. And I was spooking the deer out of there each morning so that when I would go back in the evening, there would be such a big gap between when I spooked them back into the heavier cover back deeper in that they would still potentially come out and get to me by the evening because there's not as much pressure there. So those right. deer down there were moving during daylight hours. Right. And I passed up a couple hundred ten inches. There wasn't anything I wanted to shoot, but uh, I ba- I totally abandoned morning hunts. And then the time I did shoot that 150-incher in that ag area, I abandoned morning hunts there as well, and I shot that buck in mm-hmm. the evening. Yeah, so it's just the opposite of what I typically do here in Michigan. Yeah, I think that it, that's the important takeaway, right? It's like you kind of have to contextualize it with the property that you're hunting. You know, it's like, it's all, yeah, it's like what's good for the goose may or may not be good for the gander, just depending on what the situation is. You know, people don't understand that everything is dictated by the 
property you're hunting, the amount and type of pressure it gets, and the and the situation at the time, you know, yeah. crunchy snow or, you know, when you go out, you know, that was stupid on me to go out there without looking at the weather report. Because typically when I go out of state, I like to go when there's a nice fresh snow so I can move around quietly. But right. that time it was crunchy and it was stupid on my part for doing that. Right. <laughs> well, it worked out with it. Well, at least the one time it worked out right with the, with, yeah. the, with the big deer. So, you know, you yep. mentioned, uh, snow, right? So late season in, are you, is there, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this. Is there any specific kind of weather conditions that you have noticed? And, and maybe you didn't kill on that hunt or that you actually saw more movement than you would have typically seen. Was there any type of, you know, whether it was during a snow after a rain, you know, crazy freezing temperatures, whatever the case was, is there anything that you've kind of been able to point to that, that says, Hey, when it does this during late season, this is probably the best opportunity I'm going to have just in general of seeing deer move. Deep snow and right after a snowfall or during, even during, I mean, that 160 inch 12 point I shot in Illinois on public land in mid December, it was two days after their gun season ended. Hmm. Um, I shot him and it was a 30, about a 35 mile an hour wind and it was seven degrees. That wasn't the wind chill. It was seven degrees without the wind chill. It was <laughs> that's, that's brutal. Damn cold. <laughs> yeah. I, I I've told this story so many times. I'm sure everybody's heard it. But I I sat. I got in this tree and I had on five body warmers. I had two Rivers West ambush jackets on with sunlock underneath. I mean, I was dressed for it. Right. And I kept my nose because I'm hunting out of a saddle, and I kept my nose right against the tree on the downwind side of the tree. So otherwise my eyes would water if I was exposed to that cold wind. Yep. And um, about a half hour before dark, I was like, why am I even sitting here? There was a locust tree next to me about 17 yards and the deer had been tearing that locust tree up. But I'm sitting there thinking, why am I sitting in this wind and this cold? No deer is going to move. And I almost got down like a half mm. hour before dark. And I'm like, well, I might as well just sit here until dark for God's sake. I only got a half an hour. Right. I saw I saw two bucks. I had a small 10 point come through and then that 12 point came through with three does and just, just before dark and I shot the 12 point. Hmm. Yeah. That's that, was, what, that shocked me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause it's one of the things that I've, I've heard from a couple different guys that I've talked to just about late season hunting. And, and, you know, it seems like, you know, and I, I learned this from a, from a gentleman who actually had a, he studied deer and he had a captive herd for a bunch of years. Um, and, what he was basically saying was, was that, you know, the, the misconception is that they, that they need to get up and feed. And he's like, it's not really true. And actually I, I listened to, I think some guys that are uh, deer biologists, I think from MSU talked about this and they were essentially saying like, Hey, you know, their body has evolved over time or has evolved to, the, to where the only way they survive the winters, especially when you get into the like Northern areas that have a lot of snow and stuff is that they, their body almost goes into hibernation where they don't need as much caloric intake to survive. It's also why they don't move and why they hurt up because they're trying to share body heat and they just aren't going to try to put out as many calories as possible so they can conserve because they don't want to have to move to go eat and food is scarce. Right. So, yep. so the, his point was, was that people think that deer need to go feed and he's like, and it's just not true. He's like, they need to go feed when the temperature gets as nasty as it can possibly be. He's like, that's when you'll see every mature buck, regardless of the time, hitting like a food source somewhere, whether for public land guys, whether it's, you know, an oak tree that still has some, you know, oak or some acorns or, on the ground, browse or, or green or, leaves on brush, right, whatever. right, whatever yeah. it is, you know, he had the luxury of observing because he had a captive herd that he was studying 
you know, so he was like every deer, it didn't matter what, you know, and he also hunted some ag land. And so he would also kind of compare it to what he was seeing just generally in his area or whatever. But he was like the nastier, the weather, he's like, I'm in the tree. He was like, you give me a day. It's basically what you had. He's like, where it's in like the single digits with wind chill and the minuses that's snowing or raining or something. He was like, that is the day you're going to see the most mature deer move in daylight. He's like, cause they have to. Yeah. I was, agree with that. And yeah. I, it was a blizzard. It was snowing too. The wind was, or the snow was going sideways. And in the year before that, I shot a 120 inch, uh, nine point from the same exact location, right. uh, coming into that, that locust tree. And it was the same, it wasn't windy. It wasn't windy, but it was probably 20 degrees. And I saw two different bucks come in and eat, eat those, uh, locust beans i think when you get an extended period of cold weather mm -hmm. uh they have a lot more need to feed if you just get a short term yeah they got body fat and they, they can withstand that right but that's that's one reason that's one thing i want when we talk about postseason scouting that's one reason i want people to wait until the snow melts if you live in a northern state before you go in postseason scouting because the sign in the snow is irrelevant to fall movement because a lot of times deer will totally change the area they're bedding to get down in lower ground out of the wind and closer to a feeding location. Right. Because they're not being pressured anymore. Right. And um, and that's one other thing I do when I'm going out of state. Typically, I don't go out of state unless there's snow in the forecast. Hmm. And a lot of times these park, you know, a lot of the Ohio, Illinois, a lot of those parks, um, have park rangers and you can actually call them and ask them if they got the snow. And if they did, you know, then when you go down there, cause my van's always loaded, you're looking at sign that you're looking at sign that was left within the last 24 hours. And by mid to late December, you're in a relatively routine movement pattern. Right. Right. So that's, that's interesting. So in, in Michigan too, like, are you, are you prioritizing hunts if you can around, around snowfalls and stuff like that, just so you can kind of see where they're moving? Cause if, to that point, if they're if they're uh, habitual beasts, if you will, at that time of season, right outside of like pressure, right. So if they're going from point A to point B, and you can kind of get one set of tracks and you see it, it's probably going to be pretty pretty solid evidence going forward, even when the snow melts. Do you kind of is that something you kind of su subscribe to? Uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, one hundred percent. The only downside in in Michigan is is that sign left during the daylight or after dark because <laughs> so, all the sign in the world is irrelevant if it's made after dark right but if you can see where they're if you can see where they're going back to bed then you've got your play for the morning yeah and then that's also your your knowledge comes into you know into fruition there because if you've been hunting a long time you can just tell based on the area you're hunting and the mountain type of pressure it's getting if there's adequate security cover where these travel routes are or daytime movement by a mature buck that you may want to kill. Right. You know, all that stuff has to go into the equation. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the tracks alone. It's, it, you know, for, you know, and if you're not familiar, it's pulling up a map and looking with all the, yeah. you know, uh, app map technology and stuff like you can get a pretty good visual and kind of tell, like when you see tracks and look and be like, all right, well, they're headed this way. Well, what's the next best set of bedding cover? You know, well, let's go look at that. Maybe I go yeah. set up there. Right. And that's, that's kind of the, the game, but I know we were just talking about super cold weather, man. And like you were talking about, you're, you're like, am I crazy or what? I'm sitting out in this tree. It's like seven degrees with a minus wind chill, snow blowing, faces freezing. You know, I think part of the thing that people underestimate during late season is just the simple fact of staying warm. 
right? Like you got to be in the tree to be in the game, right? So do you have any kind of like John Eberhardt's yeah. tricks, tips, and tactics for that you've I'll developed you over what, the years? The last two years, I mean, I've been using grabber body warmers for years. Yeah. You know, they're adhesive body warmers. They're air activated, and I put them on my kidneys and in my sternum on, on my base, uh, over my base garments when I start to get cold. And they only get to like 142 degrees. So they're, they, they're made for patients with arthritis. And mm-hmm. so they have a very controlled heat. It's not like taking a hand warmer or a toe warmer and putting it inside where you're going to end up burning yourself because they don't, they're totally controlled by how much air they get. Right. So these body warmers are great, but the last two years I've been using these heated vests, oh. and they are bad ass. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> they are bad. So what, Bad is in good. Right. <laughs> bad is in like how the kids say good now, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I just got another one. I've got three of them. I've got two of them that are made by Stuntlock, and I don't like them. Mm-hmm. Um they, they're called reactors. They're $200 retails by Stuntlock. They don't come with batteries. Uh, they're five volt, um, but they shut off after 45 minutes. They uh-huh. work phenomenally well, and they have insulation in the body of the vest, hmm. but they shut off after 45 minutes, and I hunt out of a saddle. And usually your vest is going to be just above my base garment, which is going to be typically some kind of merino wool. Right. So I've always got something else over my vest and then my scent lock over top of, of that. And plus I've got a saddle on. So it's coming up a little bit around my side. Mm-hmm. So when the vest shuts off after 45 minutes, it's hard to, you know, I got to, because I'm in my signature saddle, I overlap the two panels. So I actually have access to get up into my pocket in that vest underneath. But it's still difficult because it's underneath, the, you know, my two other layers. Right. And I just think it's ridiculous for something to have an automatic 45-minute shutoff. If I want to turn it off, I ought to be able to turn it off myself. I'm an adult. I bought the damn thing. Right. <laughs> right. So which, so, what, what, so what one do you, what, uh, which one do you have that you, that you really like that you think works well? I just bought one, and I don't remember the name of it. It was $89. I bought it online. It came with a 10,000-amp, 5-volt battery, and it actually is. It's actually cool because it's got two controls. They all have controls on the upper uh, breast of one of the sides. Hmm. This particular one, it's Hudson or Hadson or something like that. I've hmm. got it downstairs. I'll grab it when when we switch gears into the next show, or unless you want me to get it now. Oh uh, no, that's fine. We'll, we can grab it. And we'll just pick it up when okay. we start the next one. Yeah. But but anyway, they have these these heated vests. They have carbon filaments in them. And so this one has one carbon filament that goes around the back of the collar, which is really awesome. It's just a light heat, which is all you need on the back of your neck. But it's got two big panels in the back, and it's got three panels in the front. And it's got a button for each side. So it's got Hmm. a button that controls the front panels, and it's got a button that controls the back panels and the little carbon fiber in the collar of your vest. Hmm. I'm telling you what, they are. And it was only eighty nine dollars online. It was they are unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. I'm gonna definitely need to know what that is because that's. Um, I would like to definitely check those out just because I'm always kind of a nut about trying to keep my. Uh, I like to wear as little clothing as possible when I go hunt. You know, and well, a lot of cut down at least one to two layers. Yeah, because and a lot of times I'll go in and I'll know that I'm gonna be cold just because I don't want to wear extra stuff or I don't want to carry extra stuff with me. Um, and so I would like to be able to do something like that. I mean, I use the trick that you were talking about with the, 
pads on my kidneys and on my chest and stuff like that. It actually saved my rear end when I was in Iowa last year because I had some days where the morning it was like minus 15, you know, and I was going to be out all day. And the only way I was going to stay out was just trying to keep those uh, critical <laughs> critical uh, organs functioning at, at optimal sure. <laughs> capacity or else yeah. I was going to be in trouble. Um, but yeah, something like a heated vest would be, would be awesome to kind of explore just for that, for that reason. You have got to buy a heated vest. Everybody should own, if you hunt in a North, Northern state, you definitely need to invest in heated vest. So with that, man, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, absolutely. And everybody thinks that I'm in bed with Suntlock and I am not because I just said the Suntlock ones, you know, I got, I got them really, really cheap because I'm on their pro staff. But I don't like the scent lock ones. I like the other ones that are a lot less money better because I don't like the 45-minute shutoff on the reactor vest that scent lock makes. Right. Yep. So with that, man, you know, let's, uh, let's wrap this one up. Is there anything – well, before that, is there anything else for late season you can think of that we didn't touch on that you think is important? Well, uh, if anybody's going to go out late season, I just, I just suggest focus everything on security cover and food. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if there's no food and if, if – if you've got property and you don't have a bedding area on it, you're wasting your time. Right. <laughs> you are 100% wasting your time hunting it, yeah. uh, unless you're on a managed property. You know, managed properties, you can get away with murder and do lots of things. But if you're on regular knock on doors and public land, if, if there's not a bedding area, you know, where you're planning on hunting or very, very close within a couple hundred yards and you got good security transition cover to where you're going, you are 100% wasting your time. Or if you're hunting in a, you know, you see a lot of these YouTube videos now, these guys up in saddles, you know, 18, 20 feet off the ground in a 14-inch diameter tree. Mm-hmm. If you're hunting in a PA or a Michigan or a New York, you're going to get picked. When right. the foliage is down, you are going to get picked, yeah. period. Yeah. Agreed. The only thing I would add to that is don't throw out mornings. That would be it. What? I say the only thing I would add to that is don't don't throw out mornings during late season. Oh, Definitely don't throw out mornings. Not, no, yeah. no, definitely not. <laughs> awesome, yep. man. Depends well, on the area. <laughs> right, exactly. So with that, man, I think we can shut this episode down. Before we uh, change gears here, why don't you let folks out there know where they can find out more about you and what you have going on? Okay. You want me to tell yeah. them something? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. Well, um, I've written some books. I sell them on my website at deer-john.net, D-E-E-R dash john.net or you just google my name and it'll pop up um doing these whitetail workshops they're just about full i've only got a few openings uh left in those but that information's on my website as well and uh my son john and joe and i started a youtube channel a few months ago and it's doing very 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 well going to have a lot of scouting stuff coming up in the next couple of months on it and a lot of saddle stuff coming up on it um, and I also have a, a new uh, signature saddle um, it's called Eberhardt Signature Saddle being sold through Tether. They're out of stock right now. They sold out of everything they had right away. Um, but anyway, they'll be back in stock with that pretty quick. And uh, that's about it. Awesome. Yeah. So go check them out. Give them a sub on YouTube. Check out the saddle. Uh, I highly recommend the books. I've 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 been a uh a reader of those and uh, be sure if you're in the area and you're looking to get some more knowledge on, on scouting, uh, the workshop is definitely worth uh, your time and dollars spent to spend a, spend a, spend some time with Mr. Eberhardt. So awesome. So we will go ahead and shift gears to the next episode. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank you all for listening and just following up on what John was mentioning. That was a Walston vest that he was referring to that he really liked. So if you guys are interested, go ahead and check that out. Also, if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. While you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub. Be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to the partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered. Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.